people of God in Christ. One difficult passage in the Bible is found right within the Ten Commandments. We usually read God's Ten Commandments uh, twice each month, once from Exodus 20 and a second time from Deuteronomy 5, as we have this morning. And while there are some slight differences between the two recordings of God's law, uh, both of them contain the exact language that I'm referring to in the second commandment. Uh, the second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then here's the, the difficult language. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Short of doing a full exposition and an explanation of the second commandment, Let's just remember that, uh, that the first commandment teaches us who and who alone we are to worship. The second commandment teaches us how we are to worship God, most explicitly without making and using any image of God by which to worship Him. Or, as Jesus put it, we must worship the Father in spirit and truth. But along with the second commandment comes an explanation, even this warning that being a jealous God, which is to say a God who is jealous for the worship and the praise of his people, he will visit the iniquities of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, says God. So God is jealous for his people with a holy jealousy. Uh, the, the right kind of jealousy that a, that a husband would feel is, if his wife were to go be with another man, or, or that a wife would feel if her husband were to be unfaithful to her. The next thing to see is that God equates sin with hatred of him. And then this warning that, that God will not overlook the unfaithfulness of his people but will even visit the iniquity of their idolatrous worship on the children to the third and the fourth generation. We heard earlier in Romans 11 the call of Paul to consider the kindness and severity or sternness of God, and here certainly is the sternness of God, His justice and judgment. But why on the children to the third and fourth generation. It sounds like God would be punishing the children for the sins of their fathers. And, and it's hard to argue that it's not saying that. But perhaps the best explanation is that God is simply pointing out to his people and reminding them that their sin, their, their worship of other false gods and their false worship of the one true God has consequences for their children, even for the generations to follow. So God is sounding his call for faithful parenting, but also he is naming the importance 
of His people's right and true worship of Him. But coupled with this rather stern warning and reminder from God comes this very gracious promise that God would show steadfast love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. And here's the connection to Romans 11, if you were, if you were waiting for it. This is what Paul has been teaching in Romans 11. He points out that the unbelief of Israel has always been a thing. And it has been the case that there has always been a faithful remnant preserved by God. And doesn't that fit with the promise of God to show steadfast love to the offspring of the faithful even into the thousands? And the Hebrew allows us to read it, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Maybe it doesn't get translated that way because it's too hard to say. The, the thousandth generation. But if a generation is 25 years, that's 50,000 years of God's steadfast love. God has always preserved a faithful remnant from among Israel. And Paul saw, by, by way of such teachings as Exodus 20, verse 6, repeated in Deuteronomy 5, verse 10, Paul, Paul saw that God would yet keep a remnant by way of His steadfast love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. So Paul continues his, his argument, we might call it, for not giving up on the Jews certainly not hating the Jews. And the first point this morning is God's display of mercy. Verse 30, or in verse 30, Paul writes, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And he finishes with this, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So, so can we not tell that for Paul, it, it was all about God's mercy? To some degree, no matter what the question, the answer is mercy. Uh, even the question, why did God allow sin to enter the world? Answer, so that he might have mercy. Why did God send his son into the world uh, to die on the cross for sinners? Answer, for the display of his mercy. Why does the gospel now in, in Paul's day as well as in our own, uh, why, does it, why is it going out now to the Gentiles, even to, to all nations on earth? Answer, in order that God might be merciful. And here is Paul's call for ministry to Israel. And even the expectation of their conversion by that ministry, that, that they, they have been left in their unbelief for now, that God might yet in the future show mercy to them. The point is not that the mercy of God is somehow greater or more important than any other of his attributes. Uh, remember back to what Paul wrote in Romans 3, 
that God putting Christ on the cross was a placarding, uh, a setting forth of his righteousness. God would have all to know that he is a righteous God, always doing what is right, always performing justice. And Paul even said, said it again, it was to show, this is back in Romans 3 again, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So choose whatever attribute of God, and God would have us know it of him. But consider how the mercy of God is, uh, so clearly displays the glory of God. It, uh, it happens in our own day and culture, even among or even between human beings. Uh, what's the thing that you can do that will most draw the amazement of others around you, the answer is, show mercy. Show mercy. And the greater the offense against us, the greater the amazement when we show mercy, when we, when we don't return evil for evil, when we forgive, when we, when we don't harbor bitterness toward the one who has offended us, even toward the one who continues to hate us. Of course, all offenses between mere humans pale in comparison with the offense of our sin against God. Even the greatest of sins between us on earth cannot compare so that there's, uh, so that here's the strange thing, that, that if we would grow in our knowledge of God, particularly particularly of our amazement at His mercy, then we must know more of our sin. One problem we might have in the Christian life is that we grow bored with the gospel. You ever suspect that you're growing indifferent, you're growing almost bored with the gospel. It doesn't amaze you anymore. Or maybe it didn't really amaze you all that much in the beginning. But the mercy of God in Christ is, is truly amazing if we will see it. And we will see it. We will, we will see the amazing mercy of God only as we know and grow in the conviction of our sin. Uh, we, we mustn't say, yeah, yeah, sin, uh, but just tell me now about my salvation. Actually, the two must go together. Sin and salvation, both as we come to faith in Christ and as we grow in faith. And it's also why God allows us to struggle with sin, why, why, why He doesn't grant us, as He could, some instant sanctification. Wouldn't God be glorified if, if He made me more obedient to Him? Well, yes, but, but He would have us fight for our sanctification, daily learning of His strength within us and uh, uh, His strength within us as we succeed, and daily growing in our amazement for His mercy as we fail. 
But coming back to the mercy of God toward others, remember that, uh, that that's Paul's focus here, especially uh, toward uh, his people Israel. Once again, we, we must apply this as Paul does to Israel. But once again, we can also apply it to all nations, to all sinners. Is there anyone who is outside the grace and mercy of God? Are there sinners too lost to be saved? The clear answer is no. None are beyond the mercy of God. In in fact, the greater the sinner, the greater will be the display of God's mercy to them in Christ as they are brought to repentance. Think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Uh, Think of the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. Each of them had participated in, in heaping suffering upon Jesus, and yet each of them, it would seem, in some way came to see that the cross of Jesus was somehow for them. Think of Paul himself. In his first letter to Timothy, he writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, uh, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul breaks out into doxology with praise to God. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And once again, it's the mercy of God that that amazes Paul. And it's the mercy of God that should amaze us as we know our sin to know God's great mercy in Christ and then to worship Christ as our wonderful, amazing Savior. And the same thing happens in Romans 11. Paul breaks out into a final doxology, starting in verse 33. And here is the basis for the the saying, maybe you've heard it, that theology leads to doxology. Remember that Romans 11 marks the end of Paul's teaching on salvation. In Romans 1 through Romans 3, verse 20, he teaches about sin, that that all mankind knows that God exists, that He is holy, and that they are sinners, and that His judgment is due to fall on them, and that the law of God cannot save us, but only teaches us our sin. The last verse, Romans 3, verse 20, sums it up. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then with Romans 3, verse 21, Paul launched into his teaching on salvation as he continues, through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now, eight chapters later, I think I did the math right, Eight chapters later, Paul concludes his teaching on salvation by breaking into doxology. 
We have heard of the grace of God, the, the gift of righteousness, how the believer has already died and has risen with Christ by way of God's plan of salvation, and that although we now battle the flesh, Romans 7, and, and daily fall to sin, yet there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, there, there is mercy, an amazing mercy from God, and mercy that must be shown by us to other sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike. And so all of it, all, all that Paul has, has covered, culminating in, in, in the amazing mercy of God, all of it brings Paul to the point of, of praising God. He writes, starting in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's one long doxology that begins first with the confession and declaration of the unsearchable mind of God. This is what praise is. This is what it means to praise God, to know God as revealed in Christ, to confess our knowledge of God as what we believe, and to declare the knowledge of God. But even as we do so, even as we know God through Christ, we must confess that He remains beyond us even more than we can fully know. In other words, even as we know and confess and declare the knowledge of him that God himself reveals to us, we also come to know his transcendence, his incomprehensibility. Or as Paul puts it, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So so to put it another way, even as we declare what we know of God, we also declare what we don't know of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The thing is, this is, this is true of every subject that we can study within creation. Uh, we can study physics, for example, and we can, uh, we can start at the elementary level, just learning about simple machines like levers and pulleys and inclined planes. But there will be more to learn in high school. In high school, we can learn some more about physics, and, and yet there will still be more if we continue at the college level. Then there's the grad level, and then there's the post-grad level for a master's degree and a, and a Ph.D. But, but even the one who earns a, a Ph.D. only knows that there is always more to know. And the reason for this, even in subjects other than God himself, is because all of creation itself is the revelation of God. Not that creation is God, but that by God's own design and purpose, creation is God's own revelation of himself to us. 
So we can know God. We can, we can know much about God. If God will grant it, we can know and believe and confess and declare all that we need to know of the knowledge of God in order to be saved. But the more we know, the more we also know how little we know of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Even in knowing God in Christ in order to be saved, yet we also know how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Well, finally, then God's glory forever. The last verse, verse 36, reads, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here Paul is confessing and declaring what we might call the sufficiency of God, the, even God's self-sufficiency. First of all, all things are from him. All things are from him. He is the creator of all things. And in the beginning, at creation, God created all things out of nothing. He did not depend upon materials provided by some other source. Next, all things are through him. As he created the world, the full power to create was his. God did not partner with any other power or authority. And finally, all things are to him, which is to say to his praise and for his glory. And the thing to see is is that the same is true of God in our salvation. As you well know, our salvation is, is the work of God in Christ for a new creation. Once again, our salvation is from God. He provides it Himself, not relying upon any goodness in us, for there is none. And if there comes to be any goodness in us, it comes after we are saved, and still by the work of God in us. And our salvation is through God. He did it, and He does it alone. If we say, yes, but, but you know, God worked salvation through Christ, well, then we only need to remember that Christ is God. So that even as God worked through Christ, yet all things are done through God alone. And so our salvation is to God. That's the point of Paul's closing doxology, theology leads to doxology. The knowledge of God brings us to worship God, to praise God, and so it will be in heaven forever, for all eternity, as we dwell with God in the new creation. God will still be transcendent and incomprehensible. He will be the God whom He always is, And we will still be limited creatures, even in our glorified state. He will be the God whom He always is. We will still be creatures, but as we know Him in heaven to the fullest degree that we can, we will worship Him. And it will be just like Paul, 
Paul didn't uh, finish his teaching on salvation by deciding to praise God. He was moved to it, even as we will be moved by God to worship Him as we come to know Him in Christ. Have you known the mercy of God? It's really the same question to ask. Have you come to know Christ as your Savior? If you have, then that's why you are here. To stand in amazement at the mercy of God and to declare His praise. Amen. Let us pray. We praise you, O God our Father, in response to the salvation that you have provided us in Christ, so to reveal yourself to us that indeed we might praise you. We declare that you have all power to do whatever you are pleased to do. We declare that you have all authority to do whatever you want to do. We declare that you have all wisdom as you reveal by your plan of salvation and by working out that plan in time and space. And oh, how we love to declare your mercy and delight to declare that you have been merciful to us. You have forgiven the offense of our sin. You have provided for our righteousness. You have delivered us from hell and given us to share in Christ's glory in heaven. How merciful you have been to us and are to us. Grant it, O Lord, that we might grow in knowing your mercy to us in Christ, that we might be grieved to miss any opportunity to worship you as our Savior God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.